Welcome to the Turd Nerds. We are the functional gastroenterology podcast discussing all things poop. Before we take the plunge into today's episode, let us tell you a bit about ourselves. I'm Dr. Rebecca Sand, a naturopathic physician and acupuncturist, and I specialize in all things gastroenterology, hormones, and fertility. I'm Dr. Ami Kapadia, and I'm a medical doctor trained in family medicine and functional medicine with a special interest in gastrointestinal health, food and environmental allergies, and autoimmune disease. And I'm Dr. Alana Gurvich, a naturopathic physician and acupuncturist who is board certified in naturopathic gastroenterology. I specialize in inflammatory bowel disease, IBS, and other functional digestive disorders. Let's jump into today's episode. The following discussion is for educational purposes only and not intended to diagnose or treat any diseases or conditions. Please consult your doctor before incorporating any of this information into your care. The information presented on this podcast is not medical advice. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to this installment of the Turd Nerds podcast. We are diving into a brand new topic that really probably we can talk about for the next 10 years on a daily basis. And we're just going to do a good dive in healing up the mucous membrane. But before we dive in, uh, we're kind of asking, we're giving a plea. We've been really growing our audience and growing our listeners, but we have not been growing our Apple podcast reviews. And so if you guys are out there and you are listening to this and you are tuning in every two weeks, and you are loving our content, we cannot explain how much posting Apple Podcast Review makes a huge difference. It's the only way that people find us. They're really, right now, everybody's finding us just through word of mouth, which is amazing, but it really stalls out on all of our listeners. So if you've got 10 seconds, just click on your Apple Podcast, give us a review, and that helps people find us. Okay, now I'm done with the selfish prompt for helping us. Now we're going to help you. And we're going to dive into what do we know about mucous membranes of the GI and how do we heal them? And actually, Dr. Sand did a huge investigative reporting um, uh, literature dive to figure out okay. to figure out what my side hustle. <laughs> she's got aside from being an amazing doctor and somebody and who mom. does Maya and a mom. Uh, Dr. Sand, what do you know? Okay, well, this is going to be a collaborative episode. Um, we all kind of prepared in our own ways in terms of like just years of healing the gut or, you know, our specialties that we bring. But um, I was able to look through a couple things and uh, mainly I'm going to be focusing on why it's important to heal the gut-brain axis, why cortisol levels matter. Um, but let's dive in first to why we care in the first place about intestinal permeability. Any thoughts on that? I have to say that I'm reading the book Cooked right now. Mm. And I'm You're on, always reading. I know. Are you reading or listening? I'm reading. That's okay. why it's taking me a long time. <laughs> uh, I am di- like I'm diving into basically chronic disease. And we know that virtually all chronic disease seems to have a component of inflammation. And that inflammation seems to be rooted to the epithelial membrane of the GI. It all comes back to the gut. What? Uh, Once again. So c- before we dive in, does someone want to define what a mucous membrane is? What are we talking about? Mucusy, well, I mean, I think so in our what we're talking about today, we're talking about the intestinal lining. And when we talk about gut barrier dysfunction, and what used to be called leaky gut by mm-hmm. the doctors who were smarter than everyone else and knew about this, but then were made fun of. And then now it's actually recognized as elevated intestinal permeability. And they call it intestinal permeability. Right. But it's basically leaky gut. Right. Basically, same thing. And so we're talking about where there's sort of like, 
little quote unquote holes in the tight junctions where there's supposed to be a separation between what's going through the tube in our gut and our bloodstream. But when you have these little, when you have intestinal permeability, you get this unfortunate mixing of antigens that that our immune system sh- shouldn't be seeing in that way. And it's been this whole link that's been found between intestinal permeability and most, if not all, autoimmune diseases, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, the gut-brain axis, hormone dysfunction, all of these things that are linked to things that are causing inflammation, leading to intestinal permeability and this unfortunate presentation of antigens right. to the to the body. And can we just have a really big picture view of why people get intestinal permeability? Can anybody think, do you want to drop some reasons of why? Well, I think there's a lot of chicken in the egg here because I think certain conditions can cause it, but also gut stuff can cause it. And then you get all the systemic issues. And I, right. It's all the big things we talk about, right? Like toxins, inflammation, food, anti- food allergens, yep. gut infections, stress. Yep. I also just want to say that our Western diet Pesticides, is almost like almost create, <laughs> yeah. Our Western diet is almost created to give us intestinal permeability right, yeah, totally. because of the pesticides, because of the glyphosate, yep. because of the fact that we don't have any fiber in our food and we're highly yeah. processed sugar, which is inflammatory, and right. all the yeast and the molds. On top of that, the chronic stress that we're under and we don't sleep and yep. we've. I mean, it's like basically you're born in a time when. It's really hard not to have intestinal permeability. Yeah, so this is a really relevant episode is sort of what I'm gathering from yeah. today. Also, medications. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, NSAIDs, yeah. NSAIDs, pre- sure. steroids. Yeah. yeah. Cancer medications, chemotherapy, you know. And then all it. the medications that we intake in our diet yep. via pesticides totally. and herbicides. And I wonder about, Alana, you were talking about SSRIs. That potentially can mm-hmm. have a link as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, right now, the more we start digging for what pharmaceuticals and how pharmaceuticals affect the microbiome, the more we discover that pharmaceuticals affect the microbiome. Also, the the more that we discover that medicine is so myopic that until you think of asking the question, you assume that it's fine. But when you actually ask the question and start researching, we start discovering that it's not really fine. Mm -hmm. And we've been basically waging a war against our microbiome and our epithelial layer since the Industrial Revolution. Right. So, bummer, guys. Sorry. And I, I feel like I read stress by itself can cause elevated intestinal yep. permeability, right? So yep. we're basically all And then in elevated trouble. cortisol levels. <laughs> Which cause, is your hole yeah. that you're going to dive into. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, why we have to And so you can't account. fully heal intestinal permeability without addressing stress. Well, I, I wouldn't recommend it. Okay. Yeah, you're going to get a lot farther, I think. <laughs> I mean, you're probably going to spend more so, time, more money, and get worse uh-huh, results. Uh-huh. Plus, you know, mental health matters. That matters. So, okay, um, things to consider when healing the gut access, the causes we're looking at. Chronic inflammatory states, that includes things like inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, other diseases, um, infections, HIV, AIDS is a big one known to do that. We have studies on that. Chemotherapy, radiation, other drugs, NSAIDs, alcohol. We didn't talk about mm-hmm. that one. It's a big one. Those with inflammation. Um, food allergies, like you mentioned, Emmy, and then um, cortisol. Anything else we want to add? Do you do either of you know if biologics have been linked to intestinal permeability? I'm mm-hmm. thinking of a few I, patients with IBD that I That's have who question. developed new food allergies after being on biologics. So the reality is, you know, my specialty is inflammatory bowel disease. And the reality is the data is very clear that biologics heal intestinal permeability because the issue with uh, inflammatory bowel disease patient is that they have so much permeability followed by inflammation. Right. And we know as a fact, the biologics cause, if it's effective, cause mucosal healing. Now, the 
immune system component, different piece. I think it's a different piece. Yeah, I mean, because it's definitely helping them, and they're in much better shape being on the medication, but they're also develop, they, they've developed new food allergies, which right. I don't understand the mechanism I of. think That's my really guess, and I haven't done a data yeah. search, my guess is when you're pulling, when you're dropping the lever of decreasing the inflammation and changing the immune system, the mm. immune system, the activity is different. Yeah. And so they're now going, shifting more towards TH2, which is more allergic. Okay. That would be my mm. guess. Okay. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. We'll see. Somebody somebody will do a study on it or they have an idea. Yeah. Read Great it. idea. Uh, okay. So why why else would we care about this? Like what are the diseases do we know relate to intestinal permeability? Basically all autoimmune disease. All autoimmune. Yeah. Right. Which is most mo- most illnesses that I think most yeah. of our patients have, have often have one autoimmune disease. And I don't even think it's limited to autoimmune. Like no. I think I was just reading something recently that like cardiovascular disease oh, yeah. is linked to or just vascular disease. disease. I think metabolic in general. We know diabetes. Right. Yep. Chronic fatigue syndrome. They're now calling um, like de- other Alzheimer's, dementia, dementia, yeah, Alzheimer's. Yeah. yeah. Type yep. 3 Alzheimer's. I also learned <laughs> asthma. Is another one uh, that makes perfect sense. Liver disease is pretty obvious, but mm-hmm. worth mentioning fibromyalgia. There are studies on that makes all of this actually like when you think about I it, know. it's like a oh yeah, of course. I know what yeah. I was trying to say a few minutes ago was type three diabetes. I yeah. said the three other yeah. <laughs> <laughs> type three diabetes. Alzheimer's <laughs> has been described as type three diabetes, and yeah. there is this p- connection between totally yeah intestinal permeability. Um, should we just popcorn some of our favorite treatments? I haven't heard that terminology before. Really? It, <laughs> but it's a great description of what we're about to do. Wow. I also had never heard of Banksy. Banksy? Ban- Banksy? Uh, the artist? <laughs> I'm completely out of touch with pop culture. We're you guys know? You. The graffiti artist. Yes. I mean, I do. Okay. I feel like we might need to infuse well, some Facebook. Well, my friend Eva has named her dog. <laughs> and oh, I was like, oh, oh, that's an interesting name. I'm having a hard time pronouncing it still. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Apparently the who has not heard of it. <laughs> well... Back to popcorn. Okay, sorry, go ahead. Okay, so I I feel like there's no, the best place to start with intestinal permeability. And when I'm thinking about it, I personally am thinking about the small bowel. Right. Are you guys thinking about the small bowel or large bowel? Small bowel. Okay. I don't know if it's a phenomenon in the large bowel. So, okay, let me just explain why we're thinking about the small bowel. Because the job of the small bowel is to act as a barrier. You know, the stomach begins digestion, Mm -hmm. and then things drop down into the small intestine. And the job of the small intestine is, A, to have enzymes that are secreted that cut up all of the different proteins and fats and carbs. And, B, have an epithelial layer where the stuff that's being broken down is not crossing into the body. It's staying within the lumen of the GI. And when you lose that ability, that's when the body's immune system goes funny because things are coming into the bloodstream that shouldn't. Unregulated. Because right, that's where right. the absorption is happening, whereas the colon is a whole different. Yeah. So I, yeah, I've only heard of it described in the small intestine and that whole old right. lactulose mannitol test that can still be done for measuring intestinal permeability is mostly having to do with small intestinal absorption can or we actually, non-absorption. We should talk about testing. Yeah, I would like to, but I mean, also that's why, <laughs> to back up a little bit, the small intestine, that's why we talk a lot about this with our SIBO and CFO patients. Okay, so I used to sit, uh, I used to consult from this company that is no longer around, uh, but I used to sit on their medical board with two gastroenterologists. And one of the things that we were doing is we were coming up with a product yeah. that can, you know, a- address intestinal permeability. Right. And, you know, it was me, and then it was a 
really, really smart gastroenterologist for UCSD and a really, really smart gastroenterologist from Yale. And it was an interesting working environment, to be honest, because there was me who's like, yeah, herbs are fine. Drugs are bad. Yeah. Not always, but usually. Yeah. But and you then, do prescribe a lot of drugs. But I do prescribe a lot of drugs, yeah. but I'm very comfortable with sure. herbs and nutrients. Yes, and they aren't. And this Yale, no, the, the UCSD doc was, I mean, he was like kind of in the middle, you know, right. like he was a gastroenterologist. We but don't he was get like, the training by any, right. it's a, you have to learn it on your own if you're going to learn yeah. it as an MD. And then the Yale doctor had, like, basically he took his understanding of safety with the pharmaceutical industry and was trying to apply it mm. to the natural herbal supplement a- area, sure. right? And he had just, a, uh, it was a very eye-opening experience for right. me because there was so much fear. Yeah. On top of that, when we were putting together our product for intestinal permeability, one of the things he talked about is... It's like a huge topic. And really, when we're talking about a permeable intestine, we don't even really know from a medical field what we're talking about. Our, so basically, as of so a couple of papers, depending on which ones you pull, they either list three, nine, or or 20 separate layers of the intestinal mucosa. And so when we're talking about intestinal permeability, it is exceptionally not clear what we actually define that as. We're doing a whole lot of data and a whole lot of research on it, but you know, Western medicine, conventional medicine is very myopic, Mm -hmm. and they're just breaking down these layers into smaller and smaller and smaller pieces. So the the take-home to that is, if you ask a conventional gastroenterologist, there is no gold standard for testing. Right. We have testing that we use, and I think we should talk about what we're using, mm-hmm. but is it understood to be uh, the gold standard? No. There's we not ha- really a gold. There is there no is gold no standard. standard. Mm-hmm. So there's what Ami just mentioned, which is the lactulose mannitol test. Which no one really does anymore which except nobody- in research studies, but you can do it, and it is available. That is absolutely true. Nobody does it except in research. It's a very cheap test. Yeah. And I, I think like some of our functional labs still carry it. I think so. But basically what you do is you introduce orally uh, uh, X amount of lactulose and X amount of mannitol. Mannitol should stay completely within the GI tract and lactulose should be cleared or vice versa. I'd have to look. It's been so long since I, I think ordered it's vice versa. it. And then you measure the, you so, measure to see what's been absorbed versus excreted, right? Yeah, basically you collect urine over yeah. a six hour period and then you're li- literally seeing what has been excreted. So they think of that as an option. Mm-hmm. I think lactulose stays in the GI and mannitol leaves. I think that's how it goes. Because we use lactulose as, as a, a laxative. Right, yeah. so I would think. Yeah, I think that's what I it never is. fully thought it through. So. Um, so that's one option. Another option is using a zonulin. Right. A zonulin can either be done with blood or stool. I use it a lot with stool. And that is looking for the active breakdown of tight junctions. Because mm-hmm. it quite literally is the protein that just falls off. What about antivinculin, anti-CDTB? Okay, so that that is more specific uh, with basically foodborne illness. Like anti-CDT, so what uh, Dr. San is talking about right now is she's bringing up this test that used to be called, or maybe still is called, the IBS SMART test. Mm-hmm. I now Quest, I think now Quest has a similar test. It's like running out of his patent. And that basically <laughs> is looking at... Is it covered now? I don't, I okay. find, I, I, don't, I mean, you're, I haven't, I've only ordered on a handful of people that asked me for it. I'm I typically you. am a minimalist with testing, but yeah. yeah. Uh, so what that anti-CDTB basically is a test, is a marker that goes up when you've had an acute exposure to the CDTB uh, exoskeleton toxin of any foodborne uh, illnesses like salmonella or shigella or anything like that. Right. So that's a, a, a marker that goes up and calms down. Antivinculin is when you're having a chronic exposure to a part of the smooth muscle, like basically you're having an autoimmune IBS. 
Mm-hmm. That's the anti-vinculant antibody. Right. Mm-hmm. The other test that we have that's out there is an LPS. Mm-hmm. And this is another one I think it's really difficult to track down to use it clinically, but we see it a lot in studies. Mm-hmm. And when you have LPS being degraded, then that tells us that tells you there's a, at least acute intestinal permeability happening. It's also very, very important to remember that we expect the intestine to go through periods of being more permeable. It's not supposed to be locked tight. There's supposed to be this flexibility because it is a living organism. Mm -hmm. And so that's the other weakness for all of these tests because we're only looking at a moment in time. Right. So I guess I don't do a ton of testing for this. I agree. Because I see people who yeah, I, I already do it at all. pretty much can guarantee have some permeability issues. Right. Like that's sort of the last stop on the train on what I I'm agree. doing with them. I agree. Right. I don't see the point in it because if they're having symptoms, they probably have elevated intestinal permeability. Right. And like you said, it's a moment in time. And we do know that, for example, if you checked someone's cortisol, salivary cortisol mm-hmm. from day to day, that's going to change. Mm-hmm. So if their cortisol is changing all the time from stress and whatever, and that changes their intestinal permeability, then who's to say, like, there's onulin? I don't have the... Has anyone done a study? Like, have they tested them every day for a month right. to see, like, what's the point in getting a single snapshot of it? I just don't it? see the utility. And like, Dr. Fasano said every time, even people who aren't gluten sensitive, every time anyone eats gluten, they have elevated intestinal permeability for a period of time. And you take ibuprofen. So if they're doing any of those right. or eating a food they're sensitive to and don't know about, it's, yeah. I guess it's just Allergies, a, I would imagine, right. cause it too. It probably inhaled ingested yeah, allergens. Right. Yep. So not terribly useful in testing, at least for us. Yep. Right. Um, and maybe that's just our population. But probably very useful in the study segment, sure. but that's not what we do. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. So if someone comes in to my office with a positive study for some kind of leaky gut something, my question is why? Mm-hmm. What do we need to fix? Why do they have the leaky gut? Right. You know, or what else do we need to address? Mm-hmm. So, okay. Let's back to our popcorn. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I would like to start. Okay. Because I feel like the beginning of every conversation with intestinal permeability has to be glutamine. Okay. It is low-hanging fruit. It is the prefer. So the intestine is this organ, especially the small intestine. It's the only organ in the whole body that eats from two sources. It eats from the bloodstream, just like every other cell in the whole body. But the majority of its uh, nutrients come from the lumen, right? The, the enterocytes or the functional cell of the small intestine. That's so weird to think about. It's really interesting. But it's pr- it, the majority of its nutrients are coming yeah. from the lumen. It gets first pick. It's the most important cell, Weird. in my opinion. I'm very biased. <laughs> uh, but so, so glutamine is an amino acid that is actually the preferential food of the enterocyte. Right. Not the colonocyte. A colonocyte is the functional cell of the large intestine. Glutamine a little bit feeds colonocytes, but it like really feeds enterocytes. Yeah. And so because of that, I feel like there's no conversation that we can have that doesn't involve glutamine. So lots of glutamine. Mm -hmm. Um, How are you picking dosing on that? So the dosing that I've seen based on a couple of different studies is dependent on weight and is dependent on um, disease. Mm -hmm. So, uh, like level of inflammation mm-hmm. is that really what it's targeting? So inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, you, I mean, I think there's data. I of course don't have these numbers off the top of my head, but you know, a 120 pound adult, mm-hmm. I'm giving them nine grams of glutamine three times a day. Somebody with IBS, I'm giving them five grams of glutamine three times a day, mm-hmm. assuming they're about an average weight. Mm-hmm. And so, and you know, I also feel like if you do a lit search on glutamine. And intestinal permeability, there's so much data that is available. Is it is it uh, in vivo data? 
Both. Okay. But, like the IBD and the IBS studies right. were done on patients. And are you doing that as a um, single intervention with, with patients so you can tell that's doing something versus doing like a combination of treatments? Like, have you seen specific clinical improvement or is it more that you're assuming it's doing what it does in the study? Uh, I am assuming what it does that is doing what it does in the study, and I will say that is one. If you dose appropriately, you really see clinical benefit. And what kind of things are people telling you? Decrease pain, decrease bloating, mm. decrease pain, uh, brain fog, increase bowel movements, like lowering the amount that they feel. That, you know what is healthy digestion? Mm-hmm. It's an organ that you don't feel. Right. You feel hungry. You're not you feel like you have to it. poop. Yeah. But the rest mm-hmm. of it, it does its own thing. Right. And have you seen it make anyone worse? Uh, I've seen that it ha- it has upregulated a very small subset of my patients' anxiety. Oh, I've definitely okay. seen Because the reason I've always been hesitant to use it very frequently is somewhere along the line, I was told or read that it can make some forms of dysbiosis worse. Um, but that seems contrary to most of the data you're you're discussing. I've never seen that. Yeah. I've seen it heighten a small like I, a small subset of my population. It will heighten their anxiety. What's interesting is it is not always the um, anxious, anxious patients, yeah. hmm. but I mean that it it basically I think it feeds the it it can if the pathway is not correct glutamate. go into the glutamate pathway, right. um, and so I have seen that. Okay, so All glutamine's right. a big winner. Quercetin, anyone? <laughs> I have a lot of experience with quercetin. <laughs> I had a hunch. I had a hunch. I, uh, so there is a whoops, there is one particular study that looked at resveratrol, and they looked at resveratrol for IBS patients, and what the and I I feel like I read the study so long ago. What they found is using resveratrol, which the most active constituent in resveratrol is actually quercetin, it's a bioflavonoid. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think I made that connection either. Wow. Yeah. Resveratrol is my fave. That's my number one. Yeah. I see that It's because really of the well. quercetin. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's a bioflavonoid in Mind there. Mind blown. Um, the, basically, if you use uber high doses for a short amount of time. So, okay, hold on a second. I thought quercetin was just like onions, garlic, extract. Bl- berries. Food based. Whoa. Because resveratrol is grape skins. Mm-hmm. Wow. Or but, from Japanese knotweed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. which is what you're using. Which is what I use with patients. Well, which is what I've used more for other indications as well, but it, it has resveratrol. It's another source of resveratrol. Amazing. I, if we're honest, I think that resveratrol or Japanese knotweed is safer if you're using higher doses than quercetin. Yeah. Uh, because there is data that shows the risks of quercetin in animal data right. is it can, if you're using high doses, which I do like to use, right. it will cause benign tumors, especially in the kidneys, oh. in the animal data, never in humans, but in the animal data. And in human and animal data, it does show to slow or to block conversion of T4 to T3. I was ask about that. Yeah. And so I do think resveratrol, I think the whole plant. Which would be not weed. Not weed is a whole plant. Yeah. yeah. So and and grape, you know, resveratrol in, in yep. grape, that's that more a whole plant yeah. than Kristen. Interesting. So I really like resveratrol and I learned from you, Alana, to give it a really high dose because the data showed you need like a loading dose to bring down inflammation and then do a maintenance dose. Resveratrol's kind of stupid expensive. Mm-hmm. Especially without the high doses. Yeah. And in some of my patients, I did the lower dose because they were like, I just can't afford this. And I'm like, some is better than none. Mm-hmm. It so did not work. Mm-hmm. It I agree. did not work. I totally so, and I do my loading dose for two weeks. Yep. What are you doing? Um, one, whoa! It's one hundred and twenty pills per bottle, right? Yeah. And so you, five caps twice a day, and I've had a handful of people, probably, probably actually only about two or three, who at that high dose got an abdominal rash. Huh. 
I've had people who at that high dose have diarrhea or if they're oh, constipated, the that. best bowel movement of their life. <gasps> I've never seen that either. It's just, it's it's cost prohibitive to... Wow. I tell all my patients you might get an abdominal rash if that happens. Huh. Take a Benadryl. Stop it. I've never seen the abdominal rash. at the lower dose when it clears. What do you see with Japanese knotweed? Well, I don't see... I don't really see side effects with Japanese knotweed. What's the um, dose how, that you're yeah, using? how are you dosing? But, I mean, we have capsules or liquid. Um, it's more of that herbal blend that we use for chronic infections. So I don't oh. have an exact dosing of, like, how much resveratrol is in it. I feel like but I'm But it's higher. one of the herbs that typically I don't see much side effects. Like, it, it helps cognitive function. It helps... I haven't used it for the indication you, you're using it, but oh. you could try. You could try it. It's much less expensive. So, what are and, you doing to heal the gut? Okay, so here's the we differ in our approaches. I, <laughs> now we're I mean, down most to of it. my mentors that I learned from, we and I am much more aggressive, I think, than you two about really trying to identify like potentially foods and allergens that are affecting the person's gut. Got it. In a if they're open to it and going after like. Um, toxicity, detoxification, all those those other root factors to the point where, I mean, my main mentors didn't really think it was necessary to do this stage of gut healing. It was more like remove the triggers and the gut will sort of like take care of the rest mm-hmm. because it does turn, the cells turn over pretty quickly, right? I mean, regenerate they regenerate pretty quickly. So I think, I think what you're both doing makes sense. I've gone more the route of sort of like, let's identify as many things as we can that are causing the issue and once we remove those things typically will get better and I don't necessarily do a targeted gut quote-unquote healing protocol outside you... of food as medicine keep your all yeah, the all the other fiber, things drink some water and if they tolerate fermented foods that type right. of thing but I'm not I don't do a ton of probi- not... I, I'm like a I I'm kind of like a minimalist in yeah. that in that piece like I the less is more so you're not even giving oral like pill probiotics i will sometimes but it's 50 the data is pretty 50 50 yeah. you know and then there not was that for ulcerative colitis but definitely for in general there was that unfortunate study that um one one of the gi doctors published where it made cognitive function worse because of the i forget the delactic de- acid producing bacteria wow. it made brain fog worse yeah. so i'm always hesitant i i tell patients like it's basically literally 50 50 if it's going to help there's no best one we can pick amongst these 50 really good ones and i have like i've had patients where it cures their IBS and I have other patients where it makes them worse. Totally. I tend to I tend to use more of the spore forming ones if I'm going to use them. Mm-hmm. Um, or if someone just tells me I feel good on this, great. I mean, yep. keep taking it. If, I feel that way about Sac Boulardi. I love Sac Boulardi. That yeah. is one that has so much clinical research that I mean, so, so much so many studies on it. But again, for whatever reason, I think a lot of my patients have allergic issues and they don't do great on it or we don't get the effect that I'm like, this study's telling me this should work. You know who says that too is Jill Krista. Jill Krista literally says the same thing. She says the data on it is so good. It's amazing, yeah. I feel like her population is a lot of mold. Probably, yeah. uh, So is both of yours. You just don't know. Yeah, well, that's probably true. (laughs) Uh, But she was saying there's basically this amazing animal study that looked at S. boulardi for these cows with mold, but it was in a very controlled environment where they really aggressively controlled their food. And her theory is that I think that S. boulardi... doesn't work because we're not controlling our patient's food. However, in my experience, 
I love it. It works es- great, right? It works. I love it. And is it from lychee, which I really enjoy? Isn't it oh, from the I don't skin? Know. I feel wow. like, like it's from the skin of lychee. I don't know. Which is an amazing fruit that you can get in oh, India. And <laughs> also, <laughs> also Thailand. Okay. And delicious. So, and from the Asian I don't store. know. It's I don't know that the way I'm using is necessarily addressing intestinal permeability. But I think back to your point about not really doing like a gut repair or whatever, so to say, I really feel like the gut repair I do after a SIBO treatment or some kind of small intestinal treatment is right. why I don't see a lot of relapse. That's great. And I yeah. tell my patients, like, if you're willing to stick with me through the end of like the protocol, including the gut repair section, right. I don't see a lot of relapse except in two cases, food poisoning. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess three food poisoning, a bunch of antibiotics, mm-hmm. or if you have a hypermobility spectrum disorder. I mean, I will say after I got the per- the protocol from Dr. Sand, which is from Dr. Gurevich or some combination, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's been all it, good, but... it did work great for the handful of patients that yeah. did have SIBO. And I was, we want, they did have recurrent SIBO and yeah. we're like, let's just do everything we can do so this doesn't come back. And it did work amazingly well. I think for other forms of dysbiosis, I feel like, um, I don't, I feel like, I don't know if it has the same effect if it's post protozoa, post fungal, mm-hmm. because those have different causative agents but but I don't know I yeah. haven't used it recurrently in those patients so yeah. I also think if we're going to be talking about intestinal permeability I think the other interesting compound to talk about is zinc carnosine yeah which totally. has great research which has from great Japan, research right? yep yeah uh, it has great research for ulcers ulcers induced because of radiation yep. ulcers induced because of h pylori um it has great uh it, research on ulcerative colitis mm-hmm, yeah. I mean it's just it like Zinc carnosine, it's a chelate, right? So that basically what that means is they take a zinc molecule and they put it in the lab and they make a combination to make it this special other form, which is a chelate. And um, I do feel like I have very good... I think it's my second favorite. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's part of the whole gut healing pro- protocol that you yeah. use, right? post yeah. with a... I use it a lot in just gastric issues too. So heart esophagitis. Yep. Yeah. I would yeah. agree. I would totally agree. Yeah. And I see the... we're great. I think the challenge is when I've given it, it's been with other things, so I never quite know yeah. if, it's, if it's the only thing. But it has good research. It has like, good research. Like combo heartburn products? Yeah, or, okay. or just we're doing something where we're doing more than one thing. And yeah. so I'm never quite sure just with that. Have you both there's, used it singularly? I have. There's one product that has like a squeak of glutamine in it, but okay. mostly zinc carnosine. Okay. Like I don't think it's enough glutamine to no. do anything, yeah. so I assume it's really just the and zinc carnosine. So, you and know, you've the seen data, that yeah. singularly work well yeah. for... Heartburn. Heart, okay. Seven 75 milligrams a couple of times a day for the Zenkylate yeah. or um, Zinc Carnosine. It worked great. So can you tell me, because we've talked about this before, why you're not as worried about people taking that much zinc carnosine versus just like zinc other forms? Because it's a chelate, which means that they've changed the active structure, which means it stays significantly more localized within the GI. So it's not absorbed. It's It's not going to throw off your copper And it's been being used short term. Yeah. And I can say from like, 10 to 15 years of checking people's zinc and copper levels with the normal zinc, I have yet to see someone's copper be thrown off by the 30 to 60 milligrams of zinc I've given them, even though I tell them this can happen and I want to recheck it in six months if we're going to keep going because a lot of my patients have chronically low normal zinc and to get them to the 80 to 100, I have to keep them on it, but I've never seen it suppress the copper. So theoretically it can happen but i also don't use super high doses there is a case report so yeah you do want to check but with that form i have people take a week off well but if you're some of these people their zinc is in the 50s or 60s when i first test it and then i literally we get it to like 70s and if we stop it it drops back down so uh, maybe that means they need to do this gut repair protocol what's the goal (laughs) for zinc 
I go with 80 to 100. That's not based on a study. That's based on like mentors passing down. This is what we and go for. And then what's the goal with copper? 80 to 100. Interesting. I mean, I, I, but I'm fine with a copper in the 70s. Yeah. I just don't want the copper below the lab's normal range. I don't push it to yeah, a yeah, very high level. That could be toxic. But the zinc, I, too, I do try to get to the 80 to 100 range. I typically am happy if it gets to 80. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people start significantly lower. Okay, let's recap about everything we talked about with testing and supplements. Who wants to take a go? Well, I mean, testing doesn't, I don't see much utility with it. I just don't do it. I think you should spend your money on supplements instead. Yep. Okay. Uh, And then let's recap on supplements. Here's what I got from supplements. Uh, Glutamine, there's data. Zinc carnosine, there's data. Resveratrol. Resveratrol, there's data. Quercetin, Quercetin. it has a little bit of risk. We kind of hit on probiotics a bit. And that's... uh, Anything else? Thanks, guys, for joining us. That was a great episode. Please don't forget to rate and review us. It makes all of the difference. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for joining us today. Stay tuned. We release episodes every two weeks. If you like this episode, please subscribe. And don't forget to rate and review us to help spread the turd nerd word. Eee!